millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. Today we're going to talk about Queen Elizabeth I. Very famous of, queen. Of England. Yes. Have you ever heard of her? I think I just come across my readings at some point. Yes. She was, a, <laughs> she, she was the, the frozen queen. Um, so, so she lived from the 7th of September, 1533, to the 24th of March, 1603, which uh, overlaps with quite a few of our fellows here. So she was the Queen of England and Ireland from the 17th of November, 1558. That's an important date but hold on, until her death, so until 1603. She's sometimes called the Virgin Queen, or Gloriana, or Good Queen Bess, oh, from Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And so she was, she's kind of famously, um, child, like she was childless her whole life, she never had kids, and she was the fifth and last monarch of the Tudor dynasty. And... Even more famously, perhaps, I mean, or as famously, she was the daughter of Henry VIII by his second wife, Anne Boleyn. And Anne Boleyn was executed two and a half years after Elizabeth's birth, so she never really knew her mother. And so, you know, Henry VIII had six wives, what, four of them were killed or something, one of them died. And and she's, she's a product of this union, and Travis, and I think that one thing that she's brought into this world under a great deal of drama, that never stopped. Um, she was such an influential figure throughout uh, uh, not only uh, great uh, not, not only during England's reign uh, throughout the world but but also uh, uh, worldwide she made such an impact oh yeah yep and yeah so I mean she did have an interesting life even before her coronation because her half-sister Mary reigned for a while and during during that time Elizabeth was imprisoned for ne- for nearly a year. Um, basically on suspicion of supporting Protestant rebels. And, you know, a lot of this was like conspiracy theories and, you know, to make sure her sister doesn't, you know, yeah, rise were, to power. Was, and, much like throughout the course of Europe, there's a power play between yeah. the Catholics and the Protestants, and this was in her backyard as well, well thanks and, to her dad. Yeah, this was, right? exactly. <laughs> so there were, yeah, at the time there was like Protestant reformers that wanted to go in extreme ends, like the, the Puritans and that kind of thing, and then there was, you know, the staunch Catholics that... And I mean, I don't want to get into whole, the whole history of it because there's a lot of background here. Right. But the, um, you know, Henry VIII basically wanted a divorce. In fact, he wanted like five of them, basically. And uh, the Pope wouldn't grant him. So he, you know, they broke with the church. And um, for Henry VIII, it might have been that simple. Like, I just want a divorce and the Pope won't give it to me. So screw the Pope. Because he needed an but, heir. He needed a male yeah, heir. But, right? but Elizabeth was yeah. kind of, you know, was brought up differently. And. Um, kind of did lend some of the Protestant reformers an ear here and there, and um, definitely not on the extreme end of things. Definitely not. She didn't. She didn't have much in common with the Puritans and that kind of thing. But um, yeah. In any case, you know, if you guys want to hear more, more about the background, she's covered in several other podcasts. There's you know English history podcasts and 
British history podcast or history of England, whatever, they might have they might have not gotten that far yet in yeah, their shows. If they do, they'll but, they'll do her justice because yeah. they're great shows, and and I think that uh, she's such an influential part of that go, empire. Go watch the show, The Tudors. Which yeah. is, well, of course, fictionalized to a great degree. Well, but the still, two movies you know. that came out on Elizabeth, and you know, yeah, those are great. Yeah, more than that. Oh, there's even later, yeah, yeah. yeah. But many movies about on her, and um, but you know, in, in case it's still none of this is ringing a bell. She's the one that reigned during the famous victory of during of Spain of the you know the the Spanish, Spanish. Armada that right. you know kind of probably more to do with weather than actually. Warfare, weather, but, weather, and ammunition that was not uh, appropriate for the cannons on the Spanish ships. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. Right. So and other people would call it providence, religious providence. Right. They survived. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on there. There's a, yeah. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> right. Again, you know, so that's a whole other topic. And then a whole other topic is that she she reigned in the time of Shakespeare. So and this was kind of towards the end of her reign, um, and but but just a lot of. Not just Shakespeare, but a lot of like English literature in general and arts and that kind of thing flourished in and after her time. Um, even though she she wasn't really a, much of a patron of the arts, actually. She like, wasn't, but what, yeah. one thing that really stands out to me, and I think this will, will vet itself out as we go forward in her connection to alchemy in this podcast, is that she no one could really mess around with her too much. She, she, she held her own. Uh, in her court, she figured out how to grow into her position, and once she figured the, how to play the game... Mm-hmm. She was in. Yeah, in fact, so much for, so that um, you know, if we say fifty-eight to sixteen o three, that's something like forty-four years. Yeah, minus a little, or plus a little. Um, so yeah, that's she. You know, for for a monarch in those times, like I mean, I mean those times as in like it was tumultuous. You know, the middle of the uh, or the aftermath of the Reformation or during the Reformation. Um, you know, all kinds of events happening, everybody trying to wage war at her at some point. And, um, yeah, the whole time, and even more so, that imagine if you're a monarch and you never have any heir, no no line of succession. So she famously, you know, never married. Um, and she still managed to hold on to power. You know, no one, no one, out, no one managed to oust her. There was all kinds of uh, conspiracy theories and, and you know, attempts to oust her and yeah it just never happened so well you know you can draw some correlations with you know elizabeth's unmarried status uh the fact that she was called a virgin queen um to kind of give her some kind of cult status as we know in in, uh the the cult of mary uh in in the christian belief system there's there's kind of that elevation of someone that has got that purity uh that's able to uh be a, a woman of mark and she really had that in a lot of ways you know, in, in 1559, she told the commons, the House of Commons, that is, that, and in the end, this shall be for me sufficient, that a marble stone shall declare that a queen, having reigned for such a time, lived and died a virgin, unquote. All right? Yeah. So, so later on, poets and writers took this up, this theme, and became, you know, really kind of gravitated to this iconogra- iconography uh, that exalted Elizabeth to these yeah, very so- high heights. Um, they would, yeah. So I mean, they might depict her as like as a virgin, or even as some sort of goddess, or you a know, warrior but, queen too but, at times. Yeah, just right? not. Yeah, it would, like not as a mere mortal woman. Mm-hmm. She would be, you know, elevated to you know beyond her, beyond just being a queen, but like being some supernatural being. Um, and and yeah, so so she, you know, the, it is interesting that she is kind of a public relations campaign to kind of put a positive spin on this. Yeah, so she would say things like she was married to her kingdom and subjects. 
she like a quote from her is like if she spoke to the to the population she would say like to all my husbands my good people you know as if like everybody's right. that she's married to the the people you know well she had suitors though there's a lot of a lot of guys that really really wanted to to marry this woman you know and that that includes a long list uh, that it would even t- I think one of the tops of the list of my surprise is I Ivan the Terrible. Yeah. Right? He, he, can you yeah. imagine that guy proposing marriage? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, that, that, Ivan, that's interesting. Yeah. Ivan the Fourth. There's there's a, a great stuff on him on the uh, Russian Rulers podcast. Yeah, that is really interesting, though. That, that kind of that did kind of stand out to me, too. Is uh, Yeah, I didn't I didn't even know they were in at the same time. So, uh, right. like, oh, Ivan did... Because yeah. Russia is such a different state at that time. And, and I'm like, oh, that's okay. Right. That's interesting. Well, you know, one, one thing that, that, I, that I really um, picture... Elizabeth doing is is being really invested in the new world, right? Mm-hmm. Making making sure that well. Remember we talked about John D. Right. So um, we're going to bring him up again, but um, yeah. So the first time anybody mentioned British Empire was John D. Yeah. And and John D. was interested in navigation. And John D.'s um, podcast, we kind of mentioned that he put John D. put Elizabeth the first in the role of this kind of Arthurian. I don't know, like almost legendary status that like she needs to go out and conquer her empire. Like she has the divine right of... We use that in the United States. It's called Manifest Destiny. Yeah, exactly. Right? And <laughs> so, I mean, so you had that. So so this, this is important too. I mean, you, you talk about Sir Walter Raleigh. You talk about the, you know, the explorers that, that uh, went out there to places that we know today as Virginia, right? Named after the Virgin Queen. Uh, for the state of Virginia or the yeah. colony of Virginia. I wonder if that's common knowledge. Yeah, I, I, people in Virginia, I think, yes. <laughs> but, yeah. but for the most part, Virginia, we have an idea that today Virginia is in the middle Atlantic. It's kind of an odd shape that leads into West Virginia and Kentucky. But back in the day, Virginia was a huge chunk of everything from almost Pennsylvania all the way on out to Ohio. That was called oh, yeah. Virginia. Yeah. And so um, it was a huge part, part of land that was named after uh, the Virgin Queen Elizabeth. But one thing that, that really kind of gravitates to me in, in my thought, of, if I could be a fly on the wall to, to see this, would be to see the effects of what was brought back from this colony of, of Virginia for the first time, i.e. tobacco. Mm-hmm. All right? Could you imagine someone saying, now, now, your majesty, this is something that you smoke, that we've seen people smoke, and this is going to be a cash crop because once you try it, it's fantastic and you want more. And it would give her a smoke of tobacco to the point where she was smoking it quite a bit. I was going to say, didn't I remember that from like one of the movies that she was smoking? Is that 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 is true? that yeah. is what they say is true. Her court, they said she it was it was something like she became I don't I want to say addicted to it, but let's just say that it became something that she she enjoyed. Um, and if you can imagine the queen smoking tobacco, you know, which seems kind of yeah. a lower class thing to to do. Well, but back at, then at it that, was so avant garde. At that time, it was novel. Yeah, yeah. and so. and, it be, and of course, it became built an empire. It was you know a cash crop only that grown in Virginia. Yeah, but another thing that, that kind of struck me as interesting with her is um, she. We'll get to alchemy in a second. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, sorry. So there's a lot of interesting stuff we'll get about there. it. <laughs> but because of the whole Protestant thing. Um, she didn't go to the normal allies, let's say. So she didn't go to France or Spain. In fact, you know, she had wars with France and Spain at various points. So in fact, she went to Morocco at some point, and they had something in common. Um, and then the the Ottoman Empire, in one correspondence, Sultan Murad III entertained the notion that Islam and Protestantism had, quote, much more in common than either did with Roman Catholicism, as both rejected the worship of idols. So, I mean, you know, kind of grasping at straws in a way, but um, 
still, it's kind of interesting that they're like, hey, you know, let's, okay, so here's, here's somebody that's different from the rest of Europe. Let's try to ally ourselves with them. And, you know, so, so the Sultan argued for an alliance between England and the Ottoman Empire. And they did have, um, so she started the, what was it? Not, you know, like there's the East India Trading Company, it's hard something like the, the Turkish Trading Company. It's, it formerly was known like, as like the Levant Trading Company or something well, like there, that. There was the Virginia Trading Company. Yeah, but that's for the, the other, company. other direction. Right. Other direction, yeah. right. And then so there was, for the Ottoman Empire, she created a company or she chartered a, a company called like, I think officially it was called the Levant Trading Company or something like that, that dealt with the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, and the rest of Europe, again, was like, this was a scandal because, um, you know, yeah, how dare you ally yourself with a Muslim country, you know? Maybe it so, sounds a little bit like today, like insider trading. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're basically, you know, uh, uh, attaching yourself to another another power to uh, corner the market on on, on the sales of, well, of what's going on. that, and if she didn't ally herself with somebody, you know, eventually France and Spain were going to just march all over her. Sure. So this is, you have to realize that time of her death was like 30 years before the 30 years war. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, so it really, it is that time period when, when you know, Martin Luther is just about that, you know, a little bit before that time. So it really is that time of Europe when, when they're all being polarized. This is right, you know, 50 years after Jan Hus and that kind of thing. So, okay, okay, that's, that's great. But let's bring it into alchemy a little bit. Okay, so you set the table. Yeah, so now, now we're ready we, to hear it. I think we know who she is. Okay. Um, because I know she is a really obscure figure in history, and no one's ever heard of <laughs> sure, her. Sure, right? sure. But, na- but, you know, now we know. So um, we obviously mentioned her a lot in the John D. episode. So if, if you'd like, you know, listen to that episode. There's a lot more on her. Um, in fact, I think one of the, you know, John D. episodes is one of my favorites. We, we were waiting forever, researching forever to get, to get that one just right, um, the way it turned out. So... Um, but yeah, yeah, John Dean so, and Edward Kelly when we, when we did those shows. Yeah, and I, right? I think one thing I forgot to say on that show, though, was that John... So John D. had a correspondence with Elizabeth I while he was traveling off in, in Europe, you mm-hmm. know, including coming to Prague and stuff. What I failed to mention on that show, I think, I don't think I mentioned it, was that he signed his letters with a code. Have you ever heard of this? No. Do you know what the code was? No. So he had a code name, 007. Oh, you, we did say this. Yes, that's well, right. I know I've told you this. Okay, double like a year ago, but I don't, I don't. I think we might have not said it on the show though. And so yeah, it was, and it's it's even written in a weird way. You know how John D. Everything symbols, but yeah. So John D. was the first 007. Do we ever find out exactly why he picked uh, those? I, three? There I, had to be a reason. I can't remember because not, he, he was I'm putting things, sure. you know, symbols, symbology all together, yeah. and, and numbers well, and things made. I mean, he wrote it in a codes. weird way. So you have the double O, like two zeros, and then the seven. The upper part of the seven goes over both zeros, so it does look like a weird symbol, kind of weird okay. thing. I mean, it's, it looks like a John D. kind of thing if you yeah. see it written that way. Um, but yeah, he was the first. And that's how, that's how Queen Elizabeth knew it was John D.'s correspondence. Who knows why he did Interesting. that? Interesting. But yeah, okay. well, yeah. yeah, John D. was. That, that is kind of a good point because um, John D. was disliked by a lot of people, even within Elizabeth's court. So yeah, yeah, it probably made sense for him to actually go by a pseudonym, you know. So maybe he was trying to make a picture of an owl. I think we mentioned this on the John D. show, but. Again, 1559, January 15th, was the actual coronation date. And that is no coincidence because uh, John D. carefully picked that date based off of a horoscope he cast for her. So, 
um, yeah, even her coronation date was, you know, had some astrological and, and numerological significance there. In 1568, the book um, Prope Dharmata Aphoristica was actually, you know, so it's about mathematics and astrology and magic, and he actually presented that to Queen Elizabeth, and she was very interested in this kind of thing, which is, hey, that's why we're talking about her, you know. And then I'm sure we mentioned that on the show also that in, in 1575, Queen Elizabeth actually went and visited John Dee's library at Mortlake. So, I mean, a, you know, a royal visit to John Dee's house. And um, at that time, it, John Dee actually had the biggest library in, in her kingdom. So it's not and, and it wasn't just about magic and alchemy, but it was, you know, mathematics and, and all kind navigation, all kinds of other Here's stuff. Here's the question. How do you, Arch- architecture, I mean. How do you cater to the Queen of England when she comes to your house? I mean, you serve tea. I mean, what, what do you do for that? There seems like a lot of prep work. Bring out your best china and your best Earl Grey. <laughs> and It seems a little stressful to me to be entertaining the Queen of England, but. Yeah, but, yeah. but I mean, there, there is a reason why John Dee was in her circles when not that many people liked him. And I mean, you know, there was a lot of, of people that really, really spoke out against him. But in fact, you know, she didn't just pay him a visit. She actually had her own alchemical manuscripts and she poured over these for hours. So it's not like she had a collection sitting on her shelf. No, like she actually studied alchemy. In fact, she had her own alchemical lab where she herself ran experiments. So we're not talking like, here's a monarch with an interest in alchemy, so we're going to bring on the show. No. In, by some definitions, you could call her an alchemist. So, she, so she's the real deal. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to, uh, to bring her. This is, I started reading some of the stuff. I'm like, oh boy. Yeah, she's, if you read about, there's, there's several books, um, several books that I even have that talk about the Elizabethan era and, you know, talk about these, these occult figures. But no, she played a key role herself. I mean, it, it is really interesting. So, um, for instance, like, so some of her personal beliefs. So she believed in Dee's interpretation of celestial signs for telling the coming apocalypse. And we talked about this a little bit on, on Dee's show. So she also believed that Catholics and Protestants should be reconciled before that happened, like before the apocalypse. And important part for this show is that the philosopher's stone and alchemy played a role somehow in the reconciliation. So somehow by finding the philosopher's stone, that was kind of the key to everybody would suddenly come yeah. to an understanding, what, what? you know. Or more so, trying to heal the rifts that that war and um, antagonism had 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 engulfed both parts of the religion. Yeah, maybe something like that, like the philosopher's stone, would be able to mend those 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 yeah. problems, right? And and what I think is interesting is you take the the, the normal um, historic backdrop of you know her shaping the Church of England to now now her Church of England is really a compromise. That's the only way to see. If you look at the Anglican Church today, it's a compromise between. Um, basically all other Protestant churches and the Catholic Church. And so, you know, that's historical fact. You, you can walk into Ang- any Anglican church and see that it's clearly something in between Catholicism and the rest of Protestantism. And so now you have that backdrop of like, okay, so now you take the belief that she believed that she had to reconcile the churches before the apocalypse and that the philosopher's key is a key, is a, or philosopher's stone is a key in that. Like, it just makes it so much more interesting. So, I mean, yeah, it's just that, yeah, any alchemist fans will, will appreciate that little 
tidbit. I mean, I just, you can't look at the Anglican church the same way anymore. But, you know, there was also more practical reasons. You know, more, more, more so like the early part of Elizabeth's reign that the crown was very low on money. Yeah. Right? The court was intrigued by claims of, of practical alchemy at the time because this was a, a possible cash cow if they could figure it out. Um, also, distilling houses during her reign uh, were, were... Yeah, that incre- increased a lot. Yeah. Right. So, you know, uh, uh, Millicent Frankwell uh, distilled in her own privy chamber, if you can imagine that. Uh, <laughs> we talk about a boom of distillery activities. She was extremely educated in many things, including alchemy and even challenging professors on her knowledge set. Yeah. And, in fact, when I was looking at alchemists, in her court, it's it's a total who's who. Like basically every name could be their own show. In fact, if this show exists for long enough, they probably will be because every, I mean, she really um, brought a lot of alchemists, not just alchemists, but, but, you know, kind of scientists and people that had really interesting theories to her court and really heard them out and didn't just entertain them or um, you know, have them a part of their court, but she really asked them pointed questions. Like, you know, here's the queen asking you, picking apart your own personal theories, which I thought was interesting. But um, Abel Fecknam, Thomas Norton, and then under Edward IV, um, Thomas Charnock was his uncle under Henry VII, um, T. Charnock, the nephew under Elizabeth. So, you know, you have, you have a kind of families in several of the, of the different king's courts. Uh, Cornelius de Lanoy, um, also or, or also known as de Alneto instead of Lanoy. Um, yeah, and, and there's I might have a show on him. He's really interesting. Ioannis Panteos, or Pantura, depending on you know what sources you read. Mary Sidney Her- Herbert. Um, and then there was a really interesting character that I, I really want to do a show on too, is, is William Medley. He actually turned iron to copper. Really, he did it. How except did he it? that he had... Um, it was some kind of alloys, but it really did work. He did a really fun little chemistry experiment, which was, um, I forget what it was. I'll have to do a show on him, but but to the people, to the spectators, it looked like alchemy. It was like, so first of all, this is, this is faulty alchemical theory because you're turning iron to copper. It should be the other way around, but okay, fair enough. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was um, and then Joachim Gans kind of did the same thing where, um, I don't remember what it was now, but it's it's some kind of it's some kind of alloy, and you put iron in, you mix the alloy with it, and and copper comes out. So so it was, um, you know, it would it would bind. It was some alloy that was bound to the copper, but you put it with iron, it binds more readily with iron. So the iron would seem to go away, and the copper would come out. So to the people observing, it was just like, oh my God, this is alchemy. You know, this is the best proof there is. So, yeah, really interesting stuff, but, you know, it's just a simple chemistry trick, really. But, yeah, another thing is if, if, you, if you have a keen eye and you just go Google image search some portraits of Elizabeth, you see her associated with, like, pelicans or phoenixes, and sometimes you'll see a phoenix in the corner or a, or a pelican hidden somewhere in the portrait. Interesting. I never noticed that. That is not an accident. So that, you know, the pelican is not chemical or, or even a uh, chemical um, instrument, you know, it has that neck. It's like an alembic, like an alembic, yeah, alembic cylinder, and and yeah, it looks like, like a for distillation, neck or a swan's yeah, exactly. neck, right? And they would call the pelican, you oh, know. Okay. And then a phoenix is, you know, the symbol of the philosopher's stone, you know, being reborn from the ashes, that kind of thing, um, or a homunculus, you know, that kind of thing. Um, 
But yeah, Phoenix is, you know, that's in alchemical recipes, that's one of the steps is illustrated by a Phoenix because it's, you know, elixir, like we've said a thousand times before, means from the ashes. But yeah, you, you burn your ingredients down, you get ashes, you add some mixture. Um, yeah, that's exactly, you get your elixir. So yeah, we've, we've talked about that. So look at her portraits a little more carefully. There's like straight up alchemical symbols mixed in there and, and not by coincidence. Um, and then, you know, John Prestall was in her circles. That's another, another interesting character at the time. So when you talk about all this, this knowledge set, it's just natural we talk about an academy being uh, a part of all this. And an academy was proposed in London for just the royals, the nobility, and royal servants. Among the usual navigation, math, and, and other, other types of things that are taught in a normal academy, alchemy was a part of this curriculum. It was deemed too expensive, but just interesting to note that how mainstream alchemy was was kind of making its inroads at the time. Yeah, we, as a science, exactly. And we mentioned like even later, like Harvard teaching alchemy, you know, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it was. I mean, it's too bad it didn't happen because you know an, an academy where they just formally taught alchemy that would be awesome. But um, another thing I came across, and this is really important, if. You know, because you will hear stories of people... So William Medley is the guy that turned iron to copper, right? You will hear people debunking his theories, but get this. So here's something interesting I came across. When Medley was turning iron into copper, he needed an investment. So he did that in front of William Humphrey, who at the time was the warden at the Mint. Later, which later that same position would be taken by Isaac Newton, by the way. So important position. Now Humphrey marveled at how he had created more copper than the iron he started with. So Humphrey wrote that the experiment should A, be kept secret, and B, it should be publicly ridiculed and called a failure, right, to, to keep it secret. So this means that if you read other contemporary, contemporary criticisms, Take those with a grain of salt, okay? Because this was part of a public relations campaign to, so publicly they debunked um, William Medley's experiment. Well, what you think about it, this is like supply and demand and the value and devaluation of of possible the the currency that you're having. Yeah. If if you wind up actually doing this and you're you like, did, yeah, you're you're going to debase copper. Exactly. So exactly. First of all, keep it secret, and second, let's publicly hum humiliate this experiment. This goes back so. to something I said I know a million times on this show. If there was a person to make gold, for like you know King you know for Emperor Rudolph, all yeah. right, what would happen to that person? He probably would be killed or imprisoned for the rest of his life to keep that knowledge in one place because once anybody could do it, then what would happen to gold as far as it, its its oh, uniqueness? Yeah. And, it, and everyone would have it. It would decrease. Yeah, in value. exactly. So and so. there was also yeah some German princes I read it came across that would publicly ridicule things and then secretly hire you right. know their court alchemists. Um, uh, another interesting thing, so if you look at it in this kind of occultist sort of context, if you've ever read Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, reread it knowing what I just said. So it's, it's full of uh, alchemical symbols and this kind of thing, and it's talking about Elizabeth, and it's talking about her being a sort of mystical being, you know, the fairy queen. It's about her. But if you read it in that light, you're like, oh, that's interesting. So I was, I was reading some ex excerpts about it, and um, reading a kind of a commentary on the poem, and I was like, okay, yeah, it's it's just really interesting stuff. I'm sure a lot of a lot of people, if you ever studied literature or something, you've you've come across um, Edmund Spencer, like he's really famous for the time. Um, but yeah, so you know, another another interesting kind of 
occultist or or alchemist um, take on on a common poem, let's say. Another another interesting thing is that she may have even played a role in Roger Bacon's early education, who we, who we did a show on. So, um, yeah, she. I mean, she. Her influence could be felt far and wide, but not just politically and all that stuff, but also within alchemy. So we did a show on the, on this the Swedish uh, Queen Christina uh, that was very much involved in alchemy and following things through because uh, even though the rest of her court was against her uh, following this kind of what they would consider you know dark dark uh, knowledge set that um, uh, she still followed through with it and it was kind of a a place for alchemists to come for a safe harbor in the north in Scandinavia. Uh, we all, of course, know what it was like here in Prague at a certain time, that it was a haven, uh, that uh, alchemists could come here and, and, and do their, their research. But Queen Elizabeth also was a patron of this particular art. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that we really want to send home to the point tonight in tonight's episode, because we also know that she was an extremely important and influential figure when it talks about exploration, defending the, the realm, um, you know, during the, the age of the split between the, the, the Catholics and the Protestants of church. So, you know, it just adds one more bit of information that she is uh, also a person that was very close to alchemy and allowed people such as John Dee to have some kind of influence on, on, on her life. Yeah, because exactly. I mean, um, when she passed and it was, who was the next king, Edward or something? In Edward's time, a lot of people kind of had to skip town or wash their necks because suddenly, yeah, that was not seen as something you could do. It's, there was no more safe haven in London. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, anyways, you know, distillation experiments and royal privy chambers, that definitely warrants a spot on the show. I think right? so, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, yeah, after her death, she was praised as a heroine of the Protestant cause and also, you know, a ruler of a golden age. So after her death, her... her um, kind of reputation even increased, I would say, and often, I mean, for hundreds of years, even in the 20th century, at, at, in times of need, like in war, people would remember the miracle of the Spanish Armada and that kind of thing, and people would kind of recall the, the memory of Elizabeth I. So clearly she, you know, if, if, if you can name 10 British monarchs, she's one of them. She's got to be. You know. Absolutely. So... So anyways, another royal alchemist. So Travis, we got a lot of changes coming up on the show. Yeah, we do. You're you talking about that? Okay, well that's going to happen. Yeah, so if you guys if you guys don't hear from me, so yeah, so I'm I'm moving. I'm moving from Prague to California. What? Where there are less alchemists, unfortunately. <laughs> we we got to talk about this before the show. Um, yeah, California. Well, well, this is awkward you hearing out hearing about it now. But, I'm your co-host. Um, what's going on? I um, what, what, did not what's going to happen to me? So the, the, the show <laughs> will go on. Don't worry about that. But um, it, during the transition period, you might not hear from me every couple of weeks. It might it might be a month or maybe even you know six weeks between shows until I get up and and going again. And um, uh, we'll have to you know figure out how to how to record remotely. So I mean I've done that with interviews before. Um, and it's what but, about a nine-hour difference? But it's a nine-hour time difference in so. San, Santa Clara. The show will go on. Great. We have decided we're going to be stubborn <laughs> about it. We're not going to cancel that easily. Well, we get like nine shows, right? So nine different. Oh yeah. Programs. Yeah. That I we mean, do together. So. At least some of them will go on. <laughs> I, I think Bohemian is optional. I, I think that's the wrong way to approach this because Bohemian is a great show. It's a great uh, show. Yeah. Well, I mean, what show would have define, a person from California def- and Prague to talk about Czech history? Define great. Right. Define great. Because if you mean, if you define it as like mediocre-ish. 
We have we have some very well, loyal why, followers. You look angry, Coleman. We you have look. some very loyal followers, and uh, we will continue the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, moving forward, we, I, I like we, I like the Bohemian followers. Actually, the Bohemian listeners are a great crowd. All three of them. Yeah, I knew that was coming. <laughs> 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 but you know, moving forward, uh, you know, Travis and I have discussed. We had we've had some uh, a summit, if you will, about where we want to go with these shows, and I think that uh, it will continue. We're going to be doing a lot of uh, recording. And script writing and research before uh, Travis heads out off to the uh, the new world, uh, to the West Coast, the best coast, and we'll we'll see uh, what, I mean, what happens. Now I'll be doing my script writing on a beach instead of in the rain. But yeah, you know, you yeah, you do your thing, Coleman. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> but you just you know, no, no, we're, we're going to get nice a, here too. Yeah, we're going to hear a lot of stuff about palm trees and and uh, the uh, Route One driving to work. So yeah, that, that's great. Uh, but you know it, it's going to be interesting because what we're going to have this uh, you know in two different countries uh, still be able to kind of perform what we're doing. I think there's still a lot more stories to talk about with Alchemy. There's a lot more stories to talk about with the Bohemian podcast, and of course you're going to continue your German uh, podcast as well. Oh yeah, those right? are still happening. So so there's a lot of things going on. Uh, we're going to do our best to kind of make sure that void is, there's no real gap in that vo- in in this transition. Uh, before we get back together uh, via the, Try the time difference. Still, still yeah. the, the main point is, if there is a gap, don't give up, don't unsubscribe. Uh, we will be back. So, um, yeah, just, it, that's, a, that's a big move. So I might, uh, I don't know if I'll have my microphone for a month or so. So we'll have well, to. Well, we're going to be recording during the holidays. Yeah, so yeah. we're going to do a lot, of, a lot of recording during the holidays. So uh, be ready for that. And uh, we hope you uh, st- stick with us. Yep. So thanks for listening. Alchemy's awesome. I, I, I don't know. I feel awkward. <laughs> I, I got confused. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy Podcast, thank you for listening. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.